let's say this Twinkie represents the normal amount of psychokinetic energy in the New York area. According to this morning sample, it would be a Twinkie 35 feet long, weighing approximately 600 pounds. <coughs> That's a big Twinkie. Ballin', shot calling, taking it back to the days of yes y'allin'. We holdin' on to what's golden, on the tracks we rage and we rollin'. Job numbers poppin', there ain't no stoppin' this labor market. Stuck in the pocket of too much slack in the services market. Jump in the caddy and park it, but don't tell the stock market that rates will keep rising. Is that so surprising when inflation's still poppin' and wages ain't droppin' as fast as they should? What if they could, cause profit margins are slippin'? Tech companies trippin' as demand keeps slowin'. Still, somebody's blowin' the bubble back into risk. Blinkin' you'll miss new 52-week highs. Give me a cheeseburger and fries. But hold the button, son, we're slow carbon, we wise. We got our eyes on the prize, we take it all in good stride because we know what it takes we know hard work brings success that's why we lean back on the investopedia express welcome back and welcome aboard and what in the world got into the u.s labor market january jobs report blew past expectations as u.s employers added 517,000 workers to their payrolls last month and the unemployment rate fell to 3.4 percent that's a 53-year low dating all the way back to 1969 It sure feels like the fifth dimension, as most economists were looking for job gains closer to 185,000. Exceptionally strong hiring in leisure and hospitality, professional and business services, healthcare, and the government sector led the gains, as they have for several months. That's the services side of the economy, and that's been the zone where consumer and business spending has been the most robust. But 517,000 robust? Just what's going on around here? Let's get organized, hmm? I know, Daffy. I'm confused, too. With all the layoffs in tech, media, finance, and other sectors, and all these CEOs fearing a recession, why the strong hiring? Well, maybe a lot of businesses, especially in the services part of the economy, don't want to fall victim to the dynamic of the past 18 months when they couldn't hire enough workers to meet demand. And maybe, just maybe, they think demand is going to continue and stay strong through the year. Recession be damned. The decline in the unemployment rate also tells us that more people were looking for work last month because maybe they think a recession or a slowdown is coming and they don't want to be jobless if and when that happens. But it's also important to remember that the Labor Department has kind of an antiquated way of measuring non-farm payrolls and unemployment. The fact that we're still calling the jobs report the non-farm payrolls report, that's a pretty good indication that it could stand for some modernization. Both non-farm payrolls and the unemployment report are combined together in a monthly report which comes out the first Friday of the month in what the Bureau of Labor Statistics calls the Employment Situation Report. The employment figure comes from the Household Survey, and the non-farm payrolls report comes from the Establishment Survey. The Household Survey surveys 60,000 households by phone and asks whoever answers the phone whether they're working or actively seeking for work. If the answer is yes to either, they are considered part of the U.S. labor force. And then there's the current employment statistics survey, also called the payroll survey, and that surveys 142,000 businesses and government agencies as to whether or not they are adding to their payrolls, how much they are paying their employees on average, and how many hours those workers are on the job every week. Changes to the unemployment numbers come from the payroll survey, while the unemployment rate comes from the household survey. So these are surveys, and the final figures we hear from the Labor Department on the first Friday of every month are an extrapolation from those survey results. They are not exact by any means. 
That said, they do give a general sense of the labor market for the prior month, and the Labor Department is always revising past months one way or the other to try to make them a little bit more precise. But ultimate precision is impossible with the U.S. labor force because it's constantly changing. For example, the non-farm payrolls report does not track farm workers, as it says, and it doesn't track gig economy workers either, just companies, large and small. Anyway, even though it's imprecise, January's report was a blowout any way you look at it. And if you're the Federal Reserve looking at that report, you are realizing that your efforts to curb hiring and wage growth are not working. Average weekly pay rose another 10 cents last month to $31. That's a 4.4% increase from last year and a bit of a slowdown from prior months, but still climbing. That wage inflation is something the Fed has been trying to stamp out through these rate hikes, but it's going to take a while for those rate hikes to hit wages. So what's the Federal Reserve going to do about it? That's the big question, and that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one, the Fed raised interest rates by a quarter percent last week as everyone expected, and as everyone expected, Fed Chair Powell wore a purple tie to the FOMC's press conference following the rate hike. Spoiler alert, he almost always wears a purple tie. But while a lot of investors and Fed watchers were maybe hoping that last week's rate hike might be the penultimate hike the Fed would make during this historically high rate hiking cycle, that wasn't exactly what we heard coming out of Jay Powell's mouth. We continue to anticipate that ongoing increases will be appropriate in order to attain a stance of monetary policy that is sufficiently restrictive to return inflation to 2% over time. Ongoing? Ongoing? Wait, ongoing? We're not almost done with this rate tightening business? Apparently not. And why not? Well, inflation is still at 5% as of the last reading from December, and the Fed wants it closer to 2%. But there's been progress there, except for food and rent prices. But it's the labor market that's confounding the Fed because it's too darn strong. The Fed wants to smoke out the wage increases that have been choking corporate profit margins all year and drive the unemployment rate above 4%. Both are not happening as the unemployment rate fell to 3.4% and wages increased another 10 cents last month. Keep in mind, Powell's press conference was Wednesday before the jobs report Friday. He and the FOMC may have known the report was coming in red hot later in the week, or maybe they didn't. But now they know, and we know, that the labor market is still on fire and it's going to require more rate tightening to cool it down. According to the CME's FedWatch tool, traders are overwhelmingly pricing in another quarter point hike in March, and they are split whether the Fed will hike rates again in May by either a quarter point or even half a point, which would bring the Fed funds rate to between five and five and a quarter percent. If you were hoping for a Fed pivot by the spring, it's time to reset your expectations. Number two, that word ongoing put the shiver into stocks, which rallied throughout January, delivering us one of the strongest first months of the year in stock market history, especially for the NASDAQ, which jumped 14% on the month. U.S. equity markets were kind of choppy last week, although still posted a W for the fifth consecutive week this year. And investors, hoping to let the good times roll, kept pushing the buy button whenever they could. That triggered yet another momentum indicator that is telling us that the trend for stocks keeps moving up and to the right. Nine out of 11 S&P 500 sectors now trade above their 200-day moving average, the most since last March. And those sectors now include tech and communication services, the most beaten down sectors from 2022. While we're not off to the races again in the equity market, we have a pretty strong start with good pace and strong breath. And number three, and this is important, despite the lousy year for stocks and bonds last year, 
most 401k investors kept contributing, no capitulation, no reduction in contributions for the most part. According to Vanguard, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, about 90% of investors in 401k retirement plans administered by Vanguard maintained or increased their savings rate in 2022, and trading activity fell to a two-decade low among participants who manage their own investments, according to Vanguard. Last year, 9% of workers with 401k accounts at Vanguard scaled back their investment rates from 2021, a slight increase from the 7% who did it the year before. And at the end of 2022, Vanguard's 401k client plans held 74% of their assets and stocks, up from 72% in 2020. Vanguard's customers, and it has about 5 million clients in these plans, did take it on the chin, however, just like the rest of us. The average retirement account balance declined by 20% last year to $112,572. And some clients, about 2.8% according to Vanguard, were forced to take hardship distributions to deal with emergencies like medical bills or to prevent foreclosure or eviction. That 2.8% was a record high and something we need to watch a little bit more closely this year. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it's all about earnings now that we have the Fed meeting and the January jobs report behind us. Of the 230 S&P 500 companies that have reported earnings so far, 70% have beat expectations compared to a long-run average of 66%, according to Refinitiv. The best-performing sectors have been energy and industrials, while communication services and materials have been the biggest underperformers. This week, we're going to hear from companies including Disney, PepsiCo, Unilever, Activision, Blizzard, Uber, Chipotle, PayPal, Yum! Brands, CVS, and Duke Energy, among others. On the economic front, we'll get the latest reading on consumer confidence on Friday from the University of Michigan survey. It won't be strong, but it's what consumers think about the future that we care about. What are our expectations? I'm here with Peter Tuckman at the New York Stock Exchange. On the balcony, Peter, you've been here a very long time. You're the face of the New York Stock Exchange, but you're also a true New Yorker. I want to get to the roots and then I want you to take us to today, if you don't mind. Okay. Thank you so much for being my on pleasure, the Express. My pleasure. I'm thrilled. Your first job in New York City. You're a classic New Yorker. You opened your own jazz record store, an African art gallery on Carmine Street, probably down the street from Joe's Pizza. Correct. What was that like? And how did you get from there to the New York Stock Exchange? So it was a bit of a long journey. I went to high school. I grew up in New York City, son of two Holocaust survivors. My father was a doctor. And I ended up going to the University of Massachusetts, studied agriculture and international business there. When I was done with college, I came back to New York to get a master's in business at Baruch. In the meantime, in the midst of sort of a wild night, I just sort of decided I love jazz. I had done a lot of jazz managing during college. I traveled around the world with a guy named Archie Shep, a very famous jazz saxophonist who had been sort of passed the baton by John Coltrane. So jazz was in my blood and a big part of my world. And I befriended a gentleman named the Reverend Frank Wright, who was also a very famous jazz musician. And we decided, you know what? While I was getting a master's in business at night and I was trading commodities during the day, let's open up a record store and let's get the whole gambit. Let's have a record store, a record label, an African art gallery, and a management company all in one. It was sort of like the blockchain of everything music and music business. So 35 years later, you're at the New York Stock Exchange. You start as a trader. Now you're one of the most visible people here. A lot's changed in 35 years. But from your perspective, what were the biggest changes that you've seen over the past 35 years here on the floor of the exchange and in terms of what you do on the day-to-day? Okay, so I did come back here. When I came back from Africa on May 27th, 1985, it was time to get down to business. And I got a job as a teletypist, as everyone does. It doesn't matter where you come from, who your parents are. 
to get a job on the floor of the stock exchange, which they call the street, you need to start at the beginning. You need to develop trust. You need to develop your identity as a human being who's trustable, who has certain qualities. There's no training for the job of a broker. You need to be good, transparent, good communicator, good with people, be able to thrive on chaos and whatnot. And I got a teletypist job on May 27th, 1985, and I sort of arrived. I felt I had found my niche. I love the chaos, I love the excitement. And so I worked for Cowan and Company under the podium. We're here on the floor looking down at it. It's right under the podium there. And I was able to rise up fairly quickly to go from a teletypist or a squad, which was the lowest job on the rung of your rise to fame and fortune at the stock exchange. I was good at what I did. I was quick. I loved the enthusiasm, the adrenaline and whatnot. When my internship as a summer job was over, I asked for a job and they were happy to hire me because I had those qualities that were good as a broker. I became an option clerk, a retail clerk, an institutional clerk. And then I went on to get a seat on the stock exchange. I did it rather quickly. It was a fast and furious ride because normally back in those days, to have a seat on the exchange was a great job. It was a deep, deep honor. And it usually took 10 to 13 years to get that, to go from squad or teletypist to broker because no one ever wanted to leave the job. It was such a good job. And it took a lot of training to really establish trust. Our word is our bond, the things that make a broker on the floor. I was lucky one guy left, one guy died, one guy retired, and I was sort of fast-tracked to become a broker. I became a broker in 1988 in April, I believe. And so I had been through the crash of 87 as a clerk. That was quite something. And I've been through the busiest day in history, which was January 18th at that time, which was 110 million shares that traded. Um, and my career has taken a lot of different bobs and weaves along the way. Once you become a broker, you hope that that's where you stay going forward. The biggest change we've seen in 87, we had open outcry. There were 8,000 people in this room. We had clerks, reporters, teletypists, the tube guy, the market makers, the backup clerks. I mean, there was a support staff. There were governors, supervisors. There were thousands and thousands of people in the mid 80s. There were five rooms like this. We had the Blue Room, the expanded Blue Room, 18 Broad Street. There were thousands of stocks, less than there are now, but it was a much more human game. You could only have one or two stocks being traded like an IBM or a Visa or whatnot in an active crowd by one or two market makers. So what ended up happening was obviously, as we've seen with every business, a lot of the human beings got outsourced. Technology came along. Some people feel it's better. I don't really believe that. I think the human entity, and I believe we are, and we can talk about this, more relevant than ever in this world because it is a human game and it is a person-to-person -person trust game. But technology came along, the handheld computer came along, algorithms came along and whatnot. It all did end up funneling itself down to the floor of the exchange. And we went from paper and open outcry to technological high-frequency trading, which is not something we actually do down there, but basically electric trading where you're using a handheld computer to receive order flow from customers upstairs. We disseminate them out to the book where the market makers are, and then we interact on an electric level. Yeah, when we see you on TV and all the brokers that are, work here at the exchange placing orders on tablets, that's exactly what they're doing. Instead of this manual entry or calling out to the market maker, they are actually placing the order on those tablets and doing research. So when you look down here, you see the TV studios, obviously. You see fewer people on the floor, obviously, than we did years and years ago. But what are most people doing that aren't working for the TV networks down here? Okay. So, look, a lot of people look at the plays and said there are not so many people there. We are by no means the only institution that has been affected by technology. 
obviously computers and whatnot and technology per se has made it so that what used to take a thousand people to do can now probably be done with a hundred. And that's every industry, whether it's media or branding, advertising, any industry in this world has been affected in a big way where you've outsourced human beings and been taken over by that. So we're no different. You come down here and yes, people see a lot of media and the media is great. I love that because the world has really opened up. We have to realize that it was a very secured exclusive world that Wall Street was, right? To be an accredited investor. In the old days, when your dad and your grandfather were around, as with mine, in order to invest in the stock market, you had to prove to the Merrill Lynch's and the Smith Barney's of the world that you were an accredited investor before they would take your money to invest. What did that mean? That meant that you had to prove that all the money you're investing in the market, if you were to lose 100% of it, would have no effect on your standard of living for five years. Well, I don't know anybody today that could say that, let alone back in those days, you had to be a very wealthy person. Well, so one of the good things that's come from all of the changes that are going on is that the democratization of the trading community, everyone with an iPhone or a smartphone and a hundred bucks can now trade the market. And that's a good thing, right? I've embraced that new community. 40 million people have come down into the investment community. But you asked me a different question. What do people do down here? I'm one of the people who feel that the relevance in a wild and crazy market as we've seen since COVID or since, you know, any time. Yeah, since whenever, 1999, 2008. Exactly. The bubble of 2000, the crash of 07, whatnot. On any given day, the amount of volatility that comes through here as the world becomes more interrelated and the world becomes more wild and crazy, whether it's a war, whether it's an economic crisis, whether it's a health crisis or whatnot. What goes on here has become really hyper-focused by people in the world. And so what do we do down here? I wake up in the morning, I come to work, I trade the opening bell. What is that involved? I see the order flow that comes down into my handheld, and I know that the pricing, even though the New York Stock Exchange does not do the volume that it once did back in the day, which was 80, 20% volume done by alternate trading venues and us, we are now probably 35% of the global volume because they deregulated it. You have many other trading platforms around. We are still the preeminent pricing mechanism where the New York Stock Exchange opens the price of those stocks will affect where every market around the world will trade all the other venues, plus the exchanges in Amsterdam, Singapore, wherever they may be around the globe. Right, there's 5,000 plus stocks that trade through Absol- their stock exchange, plus ETFs, plus a lot of other products. Correct. So what do we do down here? We still are convey those who have been able to reinvent themselves in the world of technology and for, go to their customers and go, we do have added value. We are incredibly relevant, even in this world. Some people are floor haters. Some people think you don't really need human beings. But look, at the end of the day, I'm not somebody who's getting into a driverless car, and I surely would be upset if I was on a plane, got into some turbulence, and I went to the cockpit and there was nobody there. Same thing with your money. These are volatile times. We're seeing thousand point intraday moves in this market. I know we get jaded by it, but those are trillions of dollars coming in and out of the market. I want to know if I'm an investor or a trader in this market, that there's a human being at the point of execution involved in that. So what we do is we convey information. We're sitting here now staring down at market makers who are sitting in their post. While it may look quiet, this is kind of the quiet time. That's why we're doing the interview. On the opening, we're in touch with our customers, telling them where the stocks are indicated to open uh, on the buy side and the sell side. Then we obviously 
go through a bit of a quieter time when people put their order flow into an algorithm. And then at 1.30, we start trading the close. I can give you basically for your audience an explanation of how that day works. So imagine- Yeah, well, take me through the process. Yeah, so bit. imagine if I'm an institution and I have a million shares of IBM to buy. And my order flow gets down to the floor somehow, or because you definitely want somebody, there's order flow, there's retail order flow that can come down through a system and be traded electronically. It's not really impactful to the market. Not that we don't love all the retailer traders, but a 10 shares, 100 shares, 1,000 shares comes in and out of the market in hyperseconds all day long. But let's say I'm an institution and I have a million shares to buy. How in a market that goes up and down, the volatility we're seeing, the intraday reversals, we're down 1,000 on the opening, we're in a bear market at noon, and we're in a bull market in the afternoon. We're down 1,400 points at 11, and we are flat by the afternoon. So these are unheard of. This has never happened before. So in that kind of a world, in that kind of a market, if I'm a large investor, an institution, a high wealth guy trying to take positions in a stock, I want to be involved wherever the market's going to go. So I want to have a broker, a human being, who's involved in the decision-making process on what's happening with my million shares. So just to give you a total example, to break it down, if I was given a million shares by XYZ to buy IBM, let's say, I'd buy 200,000 shares on the opening and trying not to impact the opening in a big way. I would then put it 400,000 shares in an algo, which would be a 10%, 20% passive aggressive algorithm that would track the consolidated global marketplace from 10 o'clock to two o'clock. That way I'm really getting exposure to all the different movements of the market over a day. I'm buying a little on the opening, market's going to do what it does. I'm going to buy 400,000 over the afternoon in an algorithm from 10 to 2, passively, aggressively, depending on the customer's demand. And then I'm going to put in 400,000 that's left for the closing bell template. That way, when the customer says, so Peter, what did you do with my order? I said, look, we're in a volatile market. Market's been up and down. It's been a little skittish. We're down a little, up a little. The market. I, I want to do the best for you. Using my experience, I got involved in every part of the marketplace. I believe I probably beat the VWAP, the volume weighted average price of the day, which is everybody's goal that you can do electronically, but I probably am able to beat it because I've been here doing this for a long time. And that way I said to him, you got some on the opening, you bought some during the day, and we were part of the closing template. Therefore, I add my relevance, I add the importance, that special human factor involved in the institutional trading. That's what we do better than anyone in the world. Look, we also do IPOs. It's a matter of a human being involved Algorithms are only as good as the people who train them. We also have markets that do run on algorithms, social media content. They're actually computers that can engage a tweet. So in that way, you have TWAPs and VWAPs, orders that are run on volume and time. Now, if you have markets that spike up and down due to news or global events or whatnot, it's really important for you not to sort of just be a follower. You need to be, have someone involved at the point of execution making decisions that may be over-exaggerated in a crazy market where a human being can make better decisions. Right, and you're getting the real feel of what's going on in the market, but also from your colleagues down here. And also you've been through a few of these. So that experience is I've also- I've seen the movie. In, actually, you've seen the movie. Well put, well put. Well, you mentioned retail traders, retail investors. Folks like me and our listeners, we're putting 100 share orders in. Obviously, that's not being executed here, but it may be bundled with a bunch of other shares. So just explain to our listeners real quick, if we're putting an order in, how does it manifest down here if it manifests at all? We know we're not influencing the market except during the meme stock days, maybe, but we are a part of this ecosystem. Where do we fit in? 
Okay, so it's important. I sort of touched on it for a moment. For me, as somebody who's been here a long time, and I think I have, look, I have a very large social media platform. I do a lot of education with Wall Street Global Trading Academy. And I've been one of the few people down here who has embraced the new retail trading community. We have a phenomenon that happened in March, April, May of 2020, where the accessibility to the marketplace for anybody with a cell phone and a couple hundred bucks happened. And a lot of people sort of were not thrilled with that. They felt they saw the meme stocks come and that phenomenon and whatnot. And I said, look, you have to realize 40 million people, according to business sources, 40 million new retail traders come into the market in March, April, May of 2020. I find that to be an extraordinary opportunity. Some people look at things as the cup half empty, cup half full. I'm an opportunity man. I love to connect people to opportunity. So for me, I thought, how incredible is that? I want to be involved in that phenomenon. What I also knew was that everybody who hit a buy button on March 23rd or May 23rd, 2020, they probably made a bunch of money if they were given the rules that you take profits when you can, not when you have to. So I have deep respect for this new community. Unfortunately, we do know that eight out of 10 new day traders end up blowing their, up their trading accounts because they didn't get the playbook, the memo, and the education. That's the basis. We'll talk about that in a minute. So I have deep respect for the new retail trader. Their orders are incredibly important. They are a new relevant. It's very rare that we have such a phenomenon happen. As I said, the barriers to entry have been around for 120 years. Suddenly those barriers are down. It happened during a bit of a perfect storm around COVID, sheltered in place, people being quarantined, stimulus checks, that whole thing, Reddit, Robinhood, whatever it was, we had all this stuff happen at the same time. It created the phenomenon of the meme stocks and whatnot. And I have nothing against the meme stocks. That was a phenomenon in itself. But retail order flow is super important. It does trickle its way down here. We do get 100 shares to buy and sell. We see it through our order flow all the time. Some do may get funneled. I think the retail investor has been given this idea that they are disadvantaged by the big guy, and that's not really true. That market makers see their orders and their stop orders, and that they're out to get them. That is not true. I'm here to complete, put a disclaimer on all that information, because I deal with retail traders. We have an academy. We have people who are still long GameStop at 400 and AMC at 70. We have people believes that you can't put in a stop order because the guys on the floor are out to get you. There's a lot of bad information out there. We love the flow. I embrace the new retail trader. Your orders do get down here. They are important to us. Some people, we won't mention who they are, are market-making firms. With the inception of Robinhood and sort of the pay-to-play game, people have this impression that they're being disadvantaged by pay-for-order flow system. That's a whole nother conversation. I mean, it does exist. I don't believe they're being disadvantaged. At the end of the day, a penny here, penny there does not make that much difference. For me, the most important thing that is important to note is the accessibility of the floor of the trading community for the retail customer is a new phenomenon, and we welcome all of you. You and I met through our passion for financial literacy. Obviously, Investopedia has been all about that, but you've been all about that, and you've devoted a good part of the last several years to training people how to trade teaching people the fundamentals. You work with our good buddy, uh, David Green, David on that. Green, yeah. Tell us what you're doing with financial literacy. We decided to curate a course called Wall Street Global Trading Academy, wsgta.com. It's a nine-hour, 21-video online course that basically breaks down 
the psychology of trading, the language of the stock market, chart setups, risk management, money management, order management, the five technical analysis instruments that we use, EMAs, pivot points, RSI, oversold, undersold conditions. And what we also did was coaching and mentoring of our students. So everybody who joins our academy, not only get an online course, which has 100 hours of archives, a watch list about Fibonacci bands, about bracket orders, and all the things you need to be a successful trader to navigate this market, we've decided that the only thing that differentiates us from all the other courses out there, and there are many, and I won't name them, is coaching and mentoring. You can sit at home. Everybody learns with a different risk profile. We thought in this market, these people are young. They're a little bit of cowboy and Indian. They need coaching and mentoring, not only giving them an amazing amount of information online. So we decided we're going to differentiate ourselves by having a coaching and mentoring program. Every student that comes into our world and our family, we have a Thursday night, David and I, not moderated. It's just him and I. I'm on the floor trading. He's running a private chat room. We come together on Thursday night. All the students who are in our academy come together and we go over the trades of the week. We go over the struggles they've had, the challenge they have learning this thing. And so we've created a global community. We've sold the course all over the world. We do live free webinars. We did one last night. There were people from Afghanistan, Albania, Curacao, South America who came on to learn about that. We try and get everybody's attention. And so we've created a community, not only giving them information within the course and the academy, but coaching and mentor them going forward. Then David offers them his boot camp, which is sort of a live interaction with David, seeing it happen in real time. We don't recommend people spend too much time paper trading. We want people to get skin in the game. So we have a program where people start trading one shares, five shares, 10 shares. And we've created an amazing community that we coach, mentor, teach, and they become part of the family. So valuable. And David's a great teacher. And I know you are too. And where can folks find this if they're looking for it? WSGTA.com. I'm known as the Einstein of Wall Street. I have a big Instagram following. It is a link in my bio. We do webinars. We have the academy. We have courses. We've got all kinds of ways to find us. I'm easy to reach, but WSGTA.com is the best way to do it. And we would love to all have you with us. Yeah, we will link to it in the show notes for sure. Let's go out on this, Peter. Yeah. You know, Investopedia is a site that was originally built on our definitions and our terms. Correct. You are a lifelong trader, a student of the financial markets. What's your favorite investing or trading or financial term and why? We're in a world where the media has sort of taken over the world. They're actually able to manipulate markets. I will go back to CNBC. Bill Ackman went on CNBC during the COVID crisis. And that interview, he was a fear monger at that point. I don't know whether he believed it or not, but he believed that the end of the world was coming. And if anyone goes back and watches that interview, he actually talked the market into a circuit breaker. So we have a lot of pundits. We have a lot of people in the investment community. We have a lot of media people who use old economic terms that, in my opinion, are not relevant anymore. A bull market and a bear market used to be designated periods of time that were a year, five years, perhaps a generation to happen. And now we actually have a time where we were in a bear market at 11 o'clock on a Monday. And by the close, we were back in a bull market. So we have inflation. That's a designated term relative to old economic mechanism. We have recession. The recession has a number of components that are used. And I'm sure if we go to Investopedia, we will see an old historic definition of it. But so it's important to me to note that 
terminology needs to be updated. We're living in a new world now. We've never been in a COVID pandemic where everybody from the hills of Kathmandu to the bottom of Antarctica's lives were affected physically, emotionally, financially, and in every possible way. So I think it's important to us. I'm not going to tell you what term is the most important to me, but I think I'd love to take this opportunity to say we need to reevaluate the terms, make them more relevant for today, because those terms are still reflected in people's impression of them and reaction to them. When people hear recession, they sell the market. They're fearful. Think about it. We got everyone all wrapped up because the price of gas went to $5 and it was all about inflation and it was Joe Byron's fault or his fault or that person's fault or whatnot. Not people accepting it was a function of the COVID pandemic. But then when gas went to $350, we never heard about it again. Recession was a term that people used because whether they, were, they wanted to sell the market down or they saw potentially economic challenges ahead, one of the basic premises of a recession are massive layoffs. Well, for the last four months, we've been talking recession and there had not been massive layoffs. Only in the last month have we seen layoffs in the tech sector. So I'm not sure that it's a legitimate term to use. So I'd love us to sort of update the terminology, bull or bear, inflation, recession, because the terms are important. People are impressed by them and people react to them. Look, I love Investopedia and I love that there's a place where people can go to learn, to understand and whatnot. But I think it's important for all of us not to scare people off. We need to rebuild confidence back in the marketplace. We need to educate people about this investing, trading, whatever you're going to be. It's a great skill mindset. I'm really thrilled the fact that I'm still alive and relevant and taking this time. Look, I could be doing a number of other things, but for me, it's so important to use this opportunity now that everyone's been invited to my party to tell them that if you drink 12 vodkas or tequilas, it may not end well. And I don't want you sitting out on the corner smoking Lucky Strikes all upset, blaming me. I didn't warn you about the party. If you come to the party, we're here, you and me. We have the same motivation to educate, motivate, inspire people. These are the rules. This is the playbook. We need to rewrite the playbook, which you and I can do. We're doing it right here now so that people know how to go forward and benefit and learn how to negotiate this crazy market successfully. Great advice. Challenge and opportunity accepted. Peter Tuckman, so good to talk to you. You've been such a good friend to Investopedia, and I'm glad that we've become friends over the years. Yes, Thanks sir. for joining The Express. Absolutely. Pleasure. It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Parker, who suggests convertible securities. And we like that term given the rebound in some convertible bonds so far this year after a terrible 2022. But what is a convertible bond or a convertible security anyway? Well, according to my favorite website, a convertible security is an investment that can be changed from its initial form into another form. The most common types of convertible securities are convertible bonds and convertible preferred shares, which can be converted into common stock. A convertible security specifies the qualifying terms and price at which it can be converted, and it pays a periodic fixed amount, a coupon payment for convertible bonds, and a preferred dividend for convertible preferred shares. Well, according to our pals at ETF Trends, which was co-founded by Tom Hendrickson, one of Investopedia's original founders, shout out Edmonton, the Spider Barclays Convertible Securities ETF, ticker CWB, which is the largest exchange-traded fund dedicated to convertible bonds, posted a January gain of 6% after dropping more than 22% last year. That, along with a broader rally across the equity market, is a pretty strong sign that investors are getting more and more comfortable shifting to risk, converting their bonds to stocks. They see upside on the horizon. Well, will their optimism be rewarded? 
Time will tell, but we're going to be keeping an eye on the convertible securities market pretty closely this year. Great suggestion, Parker. DM us your address on Instagram and we'll drop ship you a pair of Investopedia's finest socks. We're going to let Muhammad Ali take us out this week in honor of Black History Month. The greatest was the greatest, not just because of what he did in the ring, but what he did outside of it as an activist, a humanitarian, and a philanthropist. Even though he could sting like a bee, Ali was sweet like honey on the inside. Here's the champ describing how he would like to be remembered in a 1972 interview with the great David Frost. I'd like for them to say he took a few cups of love. He took one tablespoon of patience, one tablespoon, teaspoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, one pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith and he stirred it up well. Then he spread it over a span of a lifetime and he served it to each and every deserving person he met. Thanks for joining us this week, as always, and special thanks to our buddy Peter Tuckman for letting the Express pull into the New York Stock Exchange for a tour of his world on the floor of that legendary arena of capitalism on the corner of Wall and Broad. We're going to be at ETF Exchange this week, hosted by our good friends at Betafi, talking ETFs, talking to issuers, money managers, and advisors about the future of exchange-traded products, what's hot, and what's on the horizon, and we're going to be bringing you highlights of that on next week's episode, but we're also going to drop a few appetizers on our social media channels this week, so be sure to check those out. Spread some sweetness around the world this week, just like Ali, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.